0: Unbelieving people becoming Christians is the obvious thing to see, but that is everything to us, is it not? That is our great hope as a church, that those who are unbelieving, that they might see their sin, repent of their sin, and come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's a thought, do we even know what, what that involves Do you see what I mean? Yes, we know that salvation involves the cross. And we know that it involves faith. But what exactly is going on when a person comes to new life in Christ Jesus? What's happening within? What's happening at that very moment? What is it? I mean, is, is God doing something in that person? Is God doing something? Or is that person taking the initiative... And doing something themselves. What, what is it? What happens when a person is regenerated? When a person comes to uh, the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because this morning that is the question we're going to consider together. The question we're going to try and answer. Because having looked at the first three points of Calvinism over the last few weeks, in here just now, The plan is to consider effectual calling, or, come on, what is the I in the acronym TULIP? We know this, don't we? What's the I stand for? That's right, friends, just now together we're going to consider what is called irresistible grace. Irresistible grace. And the first thing that I want us to do, the first thing that I want us to to, to get our minds around are some definitions. Okay, that's the first heading. Some definitions. So everyone's with me? Are they, we, we know what we're asking, know what we're thinking about. What happens when someone believes? What happens when a person comes to new life in Christ? Well, I'll tell you, this is how we'll play that just now. I will give you one idea that many people have. And I want you, when I see this, when I go into this, I want you really honestly to think, hang on, is that, is this how I think about regeneration? Is this what I think happens? So you're ready for it? Many people believe that this coming to Christ, this first coming to Christ, is largely a work of God. It's largely a work of God. That God does this often. Breast-taking work of atonement for sin God does that, and all we have to do really is to to choose to <laughs> look to christ for the forgiveness of sin you see the view this large largely a work of god let's say 90 percent. let's go for 99 percent a divine work and there's just this tiny little bit that's tapped on at the end that we've got to do when we've got to decided to fo- follow the lord jesus christ for forgiveness okay that's it is that how we think of salvation is that how we think of, of new life, is it? Is that how you're thinking? If so, I want to say this to you, that's not right. And it's not right because it doesn't go far enough. You see? Now let me give you a word this morning. It's all-important word to, to what we're doing today. This new life, this regeneration, it is fundamentally, here's the word, it is monergistic. If you heard that word before? Monergistic is from the Greek meaning one working. Now let me tell you what it means. It means this, that God has done everything in us coming to new life in the Lord Jesus Christ. No, 99%. God has done in all that God has done, yes, that marvelous work of atoning sin, but guess what? God does even more than that. God is even the one who overcomes our sinful resistance. God is even the one who grants us by love and grace this new hearts that we have in Christ Jesus. Isn't it astonishing? What do we do? What has man done in new life? We are passive. <laughs> And it is our amazing God that has done all of the work. Now even, already this morning, if you're a Christian, don't you want to lift up your voice again? (laughs) Don't you want to just start singing in praise to God? Because what is this we're seeing? Even, even you were first turning to Jesus, even that was a gift to you from the Lord. Don't you want to sing? Don't you? I want to sing. I won't. <laughs> but I want to. But what did I promise you? I promised you some definitions. So let's go with this. Let me give you a couple of definitions. Here's the first one. Now this is the Westminster Confession of Faith. Okay, so you've got to try and follow this. Let's all try and follow this definition. So, what we're we dealing with? What is this effectual calling? The confession says this effectual call is of God's free and special grace alone from God's free, not from anything in man who is altogether passive. Until what happens, the confession says, until being renewed by the Holy Spirit, man is enabled to answer that call and to embrace that grace that's offered by God. What do you think of the definition, friends? ah isn't it beautiful come on it's beautiful isn't it some sweet sweet words there but maybe you're saying well, that's a bit wordy for first thing on a sunday morning is that what you're saying i hope not but maybe so what about this here's a second definition and i want the boys and girls in here i want you to listen really closely to your minister okay so what is this subject that people are considering today boys and girls it's called irresistible grace what about this here's the definition irresistible grace refers to the sovereign work of god to overcome the rebellion of our hearts and to bring us to faith in christ and i think honestly every single person in this room just now understands that don't we that if you were a christian the only thing that you've contributed to your salvation is your sin. Do you understand that? Your coming to Christ was not this great and wise decision that you made. It wasn't this choice. You see, <laughs> it wasn't work that you had done. What was it? It was entirely a gift to you by an almighty and loving and holy God. Isn't that glorious? Isn't it wonderful? We see some definitions. Second thing, let's move forward, let's move quickly on to some oppositions, okay? Secondly, some oppositions. Uh, I noticed online this week uh, that Oxford Diversity Press, that famous publishing house, they'd started a new feature on their website. They started a uh, word of the month feature. I think what they do is they take an old English word and they'll stick it up there and they'll try and highlight it and they'll give you some definitions and use word of the month. Now, if we at LCPC did the same thing, if we did a word of the month, then there'd be no prizes for guessing what uh, January's word of the month uh, would have been. Is there no prizes? What would it have been? It would have been Arminianism. Wouldn't it? Like that is a word that we have been banding about a lot over the last couple of weeks. Why? Not because we're obsessed in here with church history. Why have we been talking about these things? Because we surely have noticed in the sermon series that incorrect views of the cross and incorrect understandings of salvation, they are widespread, aren't they? They are rampant in the contemporary, the modern church today. Okay, now. That brings me to this, this question that I want to put to you. What is it that wider evangelicalism, what is it that Arminianism says about this subject today? Like, what do they say about new life, and what does it say about regeneration? You ready for it? Are you? Many, many, many people today believe that our first turning to Christ Our first acceptance of Christ is not a gift to us, but it is a work or an action of man. You're following me? Not of God, but of man. Now let me flesh out, let's think about the series. We've seen what? Armenians or the wider church will believe that God loves everyone the same. They will say that God has sent Jesus to die for They will say everyone sins, but what is this just now? They would say that it is actually the purpose of God, the plan of God, the will of God, to call everyone to salvation. Like, just think of it in a tennis analogy, if you like. That the ball of salvation just now, an Arminian would say, is in humanity's court. You see it? That All people across the world, everywhere, have the capacity and the ability to choose to do what? To follow the Lord Jesus Christ. It's off us to choose to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone in that same boat. Now, ah, this is what I want to know. Do you see the problems with it now? Do you? Let me give you a couple. If you think like that, It diminishes the reality of your sin. See, I don't know if you were in London just before Christmas or not. I know so many people were away in December. But if you were, you'll remember the snow day that hit us, that hit London. Do you remember that just before the middle of December, I think it was? You know what it's like in London, United Kingdom, a little bit of snow, and (laughs) you know the traffic you know the public transport system grinds to a halt and nobody can get to church okay do you remember it well if you were one of the few people who did make it to church uh, that sunday morning remember we looked at the total depravity of man what does that tell us it tells us that the sin that we have inherited from adam what is it like friends the sin Is it mild? Is it insignificant? Is it inconsequential? No, it is catastrophic for humanity, isn't it? That sin that we've received, it is devastating. Now, what does that mean for this that we're dealing with here? How do you know that new life isn't from us a decision? How must it come from God? Because such is our sin. We are incapable of choosing to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. You see that, don't you? Such is this horrendous, wretched nature that we've received. We do not have power by ourselves to turn to Jesus, to accept Jesus, to ask Jesus for forgiveness. To, to throw ourselves in. It's beyond us. What does Paul say in Romans 8? Those controlled by the sinful nature, they... Cannot please Almighty God. You see it? Hopefully you do. This Arminian idea that sinful, wretched people like you and I, that we could choose Christ is absurd. Why? Because by our nature, we are hostile to God, aren't we? And there's a, do you know, that's bad there's an even worse problem here because that view of salvation diminishes the sovereignty of god and maybe you see what i mean think about what an Armenian believes think about this idea they believe not just that God desires that all people would be saved they believe that that's what god has purposed that's the view that it was god's Will He wills that all people turn to him. You see, He does his purpose. And do you understand and recognize what that says of your God this morning? Does see seem that God wills that man would turn to him, but that man can resist that calling of God. Do you see it? In Arminianism, the will of God goes up against the will of man, and who often wins. Arminian says, what man can resist the will of God? Do you see it in Arminianism, this Arminian view of salvation? It portrays God as being impotent, as helpless, as though he is absolutely, desperately willing for people to come to salvation, but God is powerless to bring that about. And if you know anything as a Christian this morning, you know that is not your God. Don't you? You know that God is not willing and purposing the salvation of all people, but man can resist Him. What has God done? God has effectually called His elect people to salvation and our God is all powerful is he not and so what shall he do he will work effectively in their hearts he will break the bondage of sin he will overcome their resistance and how will he do it he will do it all by his irresistible perfect grace so we see some definitions we see some oppositions thirdly we see some confirmations what would you say uh, the most important thing that we do is in here just now what's the most important thing for for us to do right now when we're talking about something like irresistible grace or theological subject like this is the most important thing that I sound eloquent no it's not the most important thing that I stand still either the most important thing is that we base every thought we have here in scripture would you agree with that if we were a different sort of church i would call for an amen to that but we base everything in scripture here right now if we're going to do that there's a lot of different ways we could go what could i do just now i could cite lots of different verses that teach irresistible grace couldn't I like what's our text today what does Jesus say like is salvation something that we decide what does Jesus say no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws them right so I could just I could i could stand here make my job easier if I would just stand here and I could list and cite lots and lots of different verses could do that right here's something else I could do I could cite examples of irresistible grace you find in the Bible. What about Lydia in Acts chapter 16? We love that story. You know the story of Lydia, don't you? Now, what does Luke say? He says, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia. Then, listen, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul so we could look at lots and lots of verses, or we could look at examples of irresistible grace. Now, do you know what I want to do? I don't want to do any of that. This is what I want to do. I want to do something very different. I want to invite you into a metaphorical art gallery, just for a moment. Okay? And I want to show you some portraits, some pictures that have been painted by the Holy Spirit, painted for you, and pictures of irresistible grace. Sounds good, does it? Will you come into the metaphorical art gallery with me then, please? We open the door. Is that five pound suggested donation? Uh, door? We come in. What do we see? We see a portrait of resurrection. Because what did I do? He came and read the story of Lazarus. And I was thinking about this earlier on. It's very difficult to judge these things, but I would say, personally speaking, that is perhaps one of my favourite portions of scripture. All of the Bible. If you know it, don't you agree with me? The story of Lazarus. I mean, the, the misery <laughs> turned into such joy. Isn't it just such a spl- splendid and beautiful story? But I ask you this. Do you see what the story is? And you would say, well, it's a, it's a, it's a story of the power of Jesus. Do you see what the story is? The story is an illustration for you. It is a picture of how it is that God brings people a spiritual life. And what happens? What state is Lazarus in? He is as dead as a dodo. It's me. Just as you were. And just as I was, we were dead in our trespasses. And since he's dead, and how is he brought to life? Do you see it now? What happens? God calls him to new life. Do you see that? The first act there is a divine act. God acts, and it's only then... That Lazarus is enabled, having been given life by God, it's only then he is enabled to come forth out of the tomb. How does this life come about? Is there something Lazarus chooses for himself? Does he decide it? No. God grants it to him. Then what do we do? What do we do next? We take another couple of steps in our art gallery. What do we see in the wall? But we see now a portrait of rebirth. And here we go from my favorite portion of scripture to the most famous portion of scripture. I was asking my children today, earlier on, first thing this morning, what they thought the most famous verse in the Bible was. that was how we began the morning that's what happens in a manse in a minister's house in a reformed church that's the upbringing they've they've got to endure Um, so I was asking the kids what's what's the most famous verse in the Bible I got good answers I have to say but I didn't get the answer I was looking for because what would we say my wife got the answer Uh, we would say John 3.16 wouldn't we that's the most famous yeah most famous verse in the Bible now we all know that (laughs) And we know the context. What's happening? Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus about new life. And what does he compare it to? He compares it to rebirth. And I need you, Christian friend, to think about that again. What does that teach you about new spiritual life? Like... Physical birth, in physical birth what happens? We are conceived and we are born of the will of another. It happens from outside of ourselves. Conceived, born by the will of another. So what happens in new spiritual life? In regeneration we are conceived and born by the will of another. By the will of God. And if we were brave enough and invited Brad up to the front... A Greek expert. Do you know what he'd be able to confirm? In John 3, in the Greek, to be born again could equally be translated that we are born from above. Do you see the idea? How is it that we are brought to Christ? Are we deciding these things? You see, it's from God to us. And then the last move that we have, we we move to the end of the art gallery. And we begin to shudder because at the end of the wall, facing us is the masterpiece. Because we see a portrait now of recreation, recreation. And I've had a question banging around my head all week. It's one of those questions that I will never get an answer to as well. So I will have to cope with that and deal with it. One of those questions that gives you a headache. I've been wondering why it is that God created the world the way that he did. Or more precisely, follow this. You know that many years ago God instituted marriage as an illustration for us of Christ's love for his church. Yes? Well, is it possible that God created the world out of nothing, ex nihilo, in the way that he did, as an illustration for us of how he would bring about new spiritual life out of nothing? Now, I may never get an answer to that question. Not till glory. But you know what I can be certain about? There is a biblical parallel between creation a new spiritual life because what is it that paul says in second corinthians chapter 4 listen he says for the same god who said let light shine out of the darkness that same god has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of god do you see and recognize it now do you? What happens when a person is turned to Christ? What happens when we are regenerated? Is it something that you have done? Is it something that I have done? No, God by grace has shone light into your hearts. He's illuminated your soul. And he's done it all by that matchless and precious, irresistible grace. So we've seen some definitions this morning, we've seen some oppositions, some confirmations, and we end with some implications. Um, And if you're still with me, you're doing well. You're doing well. It's technical and it's theological. And because of that, let's, in a sense, ease to the end with more practical implications. And... Do you know, let me just do this very simply as we end. All I'm gonna do is give you three words. And there are three words that if you're a Christian, I long for you not to forget, but to take into the way that you live. Three words. One is humility. And you see why that must be the first word, don't you? I mean, consider what it is that we're seeing today. You have done nothing. I have done nothing. We are utterly... Undeserving of this glorious and beautiful eternal life that is ours, a salvation that goes on. We will see Jesus with our eyes. The precious inheritance, and we deserve none of it. What if we contributed? Nothing. Do you know what Scripture tells you? Even the repentance that you have, God has given to you. Even the repentance from sin is a gift. So surely that breeds humility in our hearts. How dare we be filled with spiritual pride? How dare we criticize our brothers and sisters? We must be humble before our God and humble before each other. The second word, the second word is honor. And you know where we're going and you know why we're going there, don't you? Surely in light of what we're seeing today, isn't this true? That every bit of praise and glory belongs to our God for salvation. And isn't that the greatest error that Arminianism makes? Do you know what happens? It turns salvation into a meritorious achievement by man. And you know that's not right. What has God done for you if you're a Christian? He has chosen you before time. He sent his beloved son to die in your place. And now what is this? He has even worked in your heart to change it. He's done it all for you. He loves you so much. Does he not deserve your praise this morning? Does he not deserve all of the honour? And then the last word. The last word. Is the word humility, honour. The word hope. Because what are you asking? Maybe you're asking again. But why do we evangelize? But why do we witness? If God is going to work by a resistance, what on earth is the church doing? Why bother with evangelism? And what you must understand is this, that God uses the evangelism of the church to call people to eternal life. Do you understand what I'm saying? That the vehicle that God uses to effectually call people to salvation is your witnessing. That's why we do it. That's why there's such focus on witness. That God uses the universal call to repent and believe. And he uses that to effectually call people to eternal life. And I wonder if you see the hope in that. Because let's call a spade a spade. There are so many in here just now who have people in their lives who are antagonistic to Jesus and it's breaking our hearts, isn't it? Like the people we love and our parents and our brothers and sisters and the people you work with and your friends and they they hate Jesus. Although some of them don't realize that. They are antagonistic to the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see what irresistible irresistible grace teaches you about that? You are not waiting for that person (laughs) to get to a place where they are persuaded by themselves to put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not what you're waiting for. That's not what this is about. You're not waiting for that person to have every question and every doubt and every challenge dealt with. We're not waiting for them to get to a point where they say, yes, I am going to die. I, I am going to do that. I am going to trust in the Lord Jesus. That's not what this is about. What does the Bible say to you this morning? Salvation is off. It is off the Lord. And that should give you great hope, Christian friend. Because it means that at any time, and in any place, anywhere, this glorious and great and praiseworthy God, He can save even the most antagonistic soul. And I wonder if that's what's happening in here today. Did you come into this place unbelieving that you've grown up agnostic, antagonistic to the Lord Jesus Christ, but you're at a point today where you know that despite yourself, perhaps, that the Holy Spirit is work in your life. Do you know that to be true? that the Holy Spirit is overcoming that resistance that you have, that he is breaking the chains, that he is at work in your life. If that you do, I take great pleasure in saying this to you. There is no point in resisting. That I would urge you, even this morning, to see the glory of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ, to see the wonder of what he has done for his people at Calvary Hill. And I would urge you, repent and believe. (laughs) Profess your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You do that and you join this covenant community in what we're doing today. And friends, you know what we're doing today? We are rejoicing in God's irresistible, amazing grace. Let's pray. Lord, we are but dust. We are sinful dust. There is nothing good and praiseworthy in us at all. So we thank you for what you have done by your natural and perfect grace. We thank you that you have reached into our lives and you have turned to Jesus, that you have provided for us resurrection rebirth, and recreation, that we are made new and all by your hand. Lord God, may it be that you receive all of the praise and the glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.